sake of those of you listening at home, we have kind of a surreal scene here in the building. Uh, when I was asked to live stream, I did not think I could do it with absolutely no one there. And so we took blood samples, and those who had the strongest immunization systems uh, were invited to be here uh, just to give a little bit of a sense. And of course, we all have questions about um, the severity of the situation and, and its impact, but I do want you to know that at the beginning of the service there was a little girl sitting up here on the front pew, and all that is left of her are these shoes. <laughs> so uh, we, we, we do need to uh, treat it with uh, the utmost severity here. Uh, late last year, Jerry and I went to Zion National Park uh, in Utah. And I'm not going to be able to reach from here with this, am I? Or maybe I need to turn it on. Okay, we're going to do the old-fashioned next slide thing. And uh, when, when we were there, we planned to do this, uh, this hike, which is the Narrows. And it's a hike up a riverbed. And along both sides are these kind of cliff-like walls. And as we're getting ready for the trip, uh, we were looking online, and a lot of people suggested using hiking sticks. And I'd never used a hiking stick or hiking pole before, but it was repeated over and over again. So I eventually decided, yeah, we need to take the, uh, the hiking sticks. And I was pretty glad that we did, because as you're walking up the river, there's these round, pretty slippery river rocks. I mean, the entire, I think the total hike up is seven miles if you choose to go the whole, um, the whole distance. Uh, the next day we did a we did another hike which was um, up the side of essentially uh, what turned out to be a, a mountain and we were on a path that was about six feet wide and it had a drop off of about seven to eight thousand feet there beside me and had i not had those hiking poles i would not have done it um, because i took the hiking stick and i made sure i had it on that side um, so that if i lost balance or anything at all that i would have that little bit of extra um, uh, security there to, to help me out and um, yeah, I'll take that clicker back now and we'll see if we've got that working there and so you'll see uh, a, a picture you can you can see on the on your left that's my foot and that's the drop-off there as we were walking up along and what those hiking sticks really did was enabled me to have the courage uh, that I needed to do that uh, to do that hike uh, at the end of that hike, uh, there's another hike called Angel's Landing, which has 10,000 foot drop-offs on both sides. Uh, I went about 10-ish minutes into that hike, realized I was not ready to die, and turned around and came back safely. But as I look at those hikes and as I reflect on that time at, at Zion, I think a lot of people approach life in pretty similar ways when it comes to needing to depend on something. Uh, there are a lot of people who who used hiking poles, but there were some who didn't use any hiking poles as they went up the narrows. Um, and, and, and not to, to overly categorize people, but they tended to be male, and then they tended to be in their 20s. You know, these, these young guys who felt like they were invincible, hiking up there, I don't need hiking poles. And I did find it humorous every time they would stumble over and they would fall. You know, these manly young men who felt like they could do anything. Um, and yet there's also people who felt like they could do anything on uh, Angel's Landing and in the last 10 years they've had a dozen people die from falling off of there. So as we approach life, some of us think, I don't need to depend on anything. 
I don't need to rely on anything. I can do this by myself. Uh, but for me, I needed to have those hiking poles in a sense to recognize my weakness and to recognize my limitations. And those hiking poles really were what enabled me to do things that I wouldn't have otherwise been able to do. And as we look at our lives spiritually, I think that we will find ourselves um, in these two categories. Some of us are, are opposed even to anything spiritual because we think, I can just do it by myself. Uh, I have what's necessary. I'm able to do anything that you put in front of me. And then there's other people who recognize, I am not able to do this on my own. Now, we do live in a culture where sometimes people who are dependent on things are seen as weak. So Jesse Ventura is famously known as saying, Organized religion is a sham and a crutch for weak-minded people who need strength in numbers. So what's your reaction to that? Somebody just called you weak-minded. Are you willing to accept the term that you are weak in any sort of way? Because we live in a culture that we idolize independence. That If you do it by yourself, that's fine. But if you have to rely on anything or anyone else, that just doesn't work. And so some of us may even feel a little bit of resistance to this notion that we're weak. But I think as we look at the biblical picture of what it means to be people, it is a story about our weakness. Nobody will come to God unless in some way they can acknowledge their dependence on something outside of themselves. Unless they can acknowledge how much they need and depend on God. See, I think Christians should be absolutely comfortable admitting our dependence. Our text uh, this morning is Joshua chapters 6, 7, and 8. And we're going to see this theme of dependence and independence as we look at it. And I think that what God is doing is God is underscoring for the people that they need to be dependent on God. In fact, that the only way that they become independent as a people is by depending on God for His deliverance. So learning to walk by faith means learning to walk with a crutch. I mean, if we can't learn how to walk depending on something outside of ourselves, we're going to really struggle as we walk along this life of faith. So, what we're going to be looking at this morning is one of the top ten most well-known Bible stories. Here's my criteria for figuring out if something's a top ten most well-known Bible stories. Number one, it has to have a veggie tale show associated with it. Number two, if you ask any five-year-old who's grown up in church to tell you the Bible story, they will be able to answer it immediately without looking at any notes. And number three, it has to have its own song about it or named after it. And so, um, I grew up learning uh, the story of Joshua through this song that I'm not at all about to sing. But Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. Jericho, Jericho. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, and the walls came a-tumbling down. Now this week, as I read through Joshua 6, and then I read through this song, I realized how poor a job this song actually does in telling the story of Joshua. In fact, if you took everything that the Bible is trying to say about Joshua and you put it beside this song, I think that you would find that this song in many ways misses the ultimate point of Joshua chapter 6. Now, I'm going to try to prove to you that I didn't just wake up on the wrong side of the bed. I'm try to prove to you that I'm not just in a bad mood. But that as we look closely at this song, we'll come to find that it's sorely lacking and really properly telling the story about what happened in Joshua 6. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to walk you through this text. And after we've walked through the text, we're going to go back to the song and see if we can figure out anything that we might find to be lacking in it. So we'll start with Joshua chapter 6, verse 1. Now Jericho was shut up inside and out because of the Israelites. So Joshua 1 begins with this insurmountable 
apparently insurmountable thing, which is a wall. So the wall is shut. They have now closed the city gates. Nobody can come in and nobody can come out. Now, maybe if you had elite special forces, it is possible, though highly unlikely, that they would find a way to penetrate a city with closed city walls. But what we are talking about is a group of people who have spent the last 40 years of their lives wandering around in the wilderness. I mean, we were told when they crossed the Jordan River that there were 40,000 armed men, but to have weapons and not know how to use weapons is not really a very strong advantage. And so what we have in many ways is a great disparity between Israel and Jericho. Uh, in fact, I, as I was reading about the, the, the setup for this this confrontation, it made me think of the movie Crocodile Dundee. And if you've ever seen the movie, there's a scene where where uh, Nick and Sue are walking at night, and, and a guy comes up and he pulls out a pocket knife and he says, give me your wallet. And Sue immediately says, I think you should give him your wallet. And, and Nick says, why would I give him my wallet? She says, because he's got a knife. And if you know the movie, he's got this little pocket knife, and then Nick pulls out what's basically like a sword or a dagger. And he says, that's not a knife, this is a knife. And what you find in this confrontation between Israel and Jericho is Israel has this little pocket knife going up to Jericho. And it seems very clear and very evident that Jericho, that Jericho will not fall to Israel because they simply don't have the experience and the skill because they are inside a fortified wall. And then God makes this astonishing statement in verse 2. See, I have handed Jericho over to you along with its king and its soldiers. The word is found in the perfect tense, as we talked about in our very first sermon. This word is to give. The Hebrew word, Nathan, what's the Hebrew word for to give? Do you remember? Nathan, very good, you did remember. And so God is, but the text doesn't say he's going to give. He says, I have already given Jericho to you. That's a pretty bold statement. In light of the fact that you have a city behind fortified walls and these men who are standing outside of it. And so let's imagine that you believe that God is actually going to deliver Israel and give them Jericho. What supplies, what resources, what kinds of people do you think are going to be needed to win this battle? Now, before I answer that question, I'm going to describe a few common things. And you're going to have to tell me what activity they're associated with, okay? So a tent, sleeping bag, and firewood. What am I getting ready to do? Camping. Good. Five points for those of you who guessed it. You lose 25 points if you didn't guess it right. The next thing, uh, a briefcase, a lunchbox, and a cup of coffee. Where am I going? Going to work. Five more points if you got it right. Now, what about uh, this one? A tie, a Bible, and a notepad. Going to church. You got it right. So we associate certain supplies and items and people and things with certain places and certain activities. So here's how God begins to describe the places, supplies, and items in Joshua chapter 6, verses 3 through 5. There are, of course, warriors, and then there are priests, trumpets of ram's horns, there's an ark, and then there's a bunch of things in Numbers of 7. Now, if you're an Israelite and you saw this list, what do you think you would guess they're getting ready to do? You're going to guess they're getting ready for a religious festival. These are, these are churchy words, making us think that they're getting ready for church. And so, essentially, you're going to have this Israel coming up against this much larger fortified Jericho. And God says, let's get our church stuff going on here. And you're thinking, how is this going to happen? How is this going to work? Because we need something more 
than what we have. Now, since this is one of the top ten most common and popular Bible stories, I'm going to just tell the story very quickly and assume you've heard it before, right? They go out, you have an armed guard in the front, then followed by the priests who have the ram's horns, who also are carrying the ark, and then you have a rear guard. And they go out on the first day, and what do they do? March around the city, and then they go back home. Day two, what do they do? March around the city and go back home. They do that for a total of six days, and then on the seventh day they go, and they march around the city seven times, and after marching around the city seven times, then Joshua says, Shout, for the Lord has given... Anybody want to guess what that word is? Nathan has given you the city. The action is delayed until verse 20. When the, then the people shouted and the trumpets were blown, as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpets... They raised a great shout, and the wall fell down flat. So the people charged straight ahead into the city and captured it. What I want you to notice is that I think that the text makes abundantly clear is that God gave Jericho to the people. Uh, and in fact, think about it this way. As you think about Joshua 6, if you were going to watch a war movie, and, and you know, you've said, I've, I've had enough of these these other genres of movie, and so I just want some real good classic battle stuff. And you get there, in the movie, the first hour and 55 minutes is all the military people going to church, and the things they do at church, and the things that happen at church, and then the scene flashes, and there's rubble, and they're standing up on top of it like we won. How many of you are going to recommend that war movie? So that's what Joshua 6 is. Joshua 6 is a bunch of churchy stuff, and then at the very end, all you see is they go straight to the city, and they capture it. And for those of you who are looking for a little bit more blood and gore and guts, it's not here in Joshua 6. God gives them the city. So as we look at this text a little bit closer, I think it becomes clear this underscoring point and purpose. God gave Jericho to the people. So what part of the story is told in the slowest possible way? The actual battle. The actual conflict. In fact, as you look at it, it doesn't really sound like a battle. Right? They, they, they march around, the walls fall, and they go. And they're like, oh, it's almost like they've stumbled across a gift. So, so imagine a guy goes out, and he's driving his pickup truck, and he runs into a deer. Can he go and start bragging to his friends about this great trophy deer that he's hunted, and he's tracked down, and he's killed? No, it's a gift. You ran into it. But Jericho is told in that exact same way. See, the part that's told so quickly and so fast is where you would expect to find the battle. It's told in a way that we are reminded that this is God's doing and God is giving the victory. Notice, as it begins, God said, I have handed Jericho over to you. He gives them these detailed religious instructions and then they say that God has given us the city. And then we're told that the city is harem, which a couple of weeks ago we talked about that means devoted to destruction. It means something is God's property, and if something's God's property, it needs to be destroyed completely. That, that every element in it and part of the story is told in a way that we come away saying that this is God's victory, this is God's property, and God has given Jericho to the people. Now, if we go back to the song, why might I have issues with the song, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, Jericho. Truth be told, I only have issues with three words, and if we were to remove these three words, I think I'd probably be okay with the song. First of all, we'd have to remove the word Joshua, wouldn't we? I mean, did Joshua fight the battle of Jericho? I mean, Joshua walked around the city, and once it went down, they walked into the city. Who fought the battle of Jericho? God did. And 
That's what Joshua 6 is trying to tell us. And, and so if we took out the word Joshua, it'd be a little bit okay. We'd also have to take out the word fought. Because where's the fighting? It says the city walls went down and they went straight ahead and they had the city. And so we took the word fought out. I'm, I'm almost getting there. But if we took the word out, battle. Because there is no battle. There is simply this wandering apart upon the city that God has caused the walls to be destroyed. So if we took out the words Joshua, fought, and battle, I think it's a great song. You know, we, we can keep it at that point, uh, even though there's not an awful lot left for us to, uh, to sing and to do with this song. See, as Joshua progresses further and further, one of the things that's going to happen is, is God's direct hand of intervention is going to not be told in as much detail. But I think what, what's happening in Joshua, in the Jericho story, and then also in the Ai story, is it's letting the people know that every other story is going to be read in light of this. That even when God is not explicitly or directly mentioned, that God is to be understood as to being involved in every one of those battles. So a way to illustrate is by looking at the use of the, the word ark. Ark of the covenant represents what for Israel? It represents God's presence. So when people say the ark is here, they're supposed to say that God is here. So when they cross over the Jordan River, that story from Joshua 3 through 5, the ark is mentioned 15 times. It's almost as if, as they're getting ready to cross the Jordan, there's no doubt that who brought them across the Jordan? It was God, because everywhere you look, the ark is there, the ark is there, the ark is there. The very next story is this Jericho story. In Joshua 6, it's mentioned 10 times. God is present. God is doing this. God is at work. Interestingly, in the next, um, the next chapters, verses 7 through 25, chapters 7 through 24, only two times is the ark mentioned. Does that mean that for the rest of it, God's not involved? No, God was so explicit in showing his involvement that we are to recognize that none of these other battles happened apart from God's presence. And so you have less mention of the ark, but you certainly don't have a minimization of God's presence. It's been established that all of this is by God's work, and all of this is by God's doing. See, I think that the story of Jericho is to say, we can do it, but God can do it. And I think that becomes the, the point of the two AI stories. You have the first attempt in Joshua chapter 7, where essentially people say, hey, we don't really need God to do this. I, I think we've got this. I mean, they've got an entire one victory under their belt, and they're like, that's okay, God, don't worry. We're going to go ahead and decide what to do. We're going to decide how many troops need to be there, and, and, and we've got this. And of course, they are not victorious of that battle. And so Joshua chapter 8 then is their way of saying, well, actually, yeah, we do need God. That if we're going to move forward into this land, we cannot move forward independently. We have to move forward depending on God's uh, deliverance and on God's provision. Now, we've already looked at Achan and his story, but I want to look at just one element of the story of Achan because I think it underlines how dependence is supposed to be happening and functioning here. Um, as you remember, Achan got caught with this stuff that he stole. And when Achan was asked about it, this was his response in Joshua chapter 7, verse 21. When I saw the spoil, a beautiful mantle from Shinar, 200 shekels of silver, and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them, and I took them. In Achan's speech here, there is a word that has not yet appeared in the book of Joshua. And that word is the spoils. Now, we might not be familiar with this sense of the spoils, but the spoils are essentially the warrior's share or pay or salary. 
for the battle of they just fought. And so if you are a military man and you go in and you conquer the city, the spoils are then divided amongst those who are there. It's kind of like the tip jar at the restaurant, right? You put your tip in and who gets part of that tip? All the hosts and the hostesses, everybody shares the tips collectively. So Achan, he says, what I found in, Joshua, or in Jericho are spoils. There's a story in uh, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 30 where David and his troops are, are pursuing the men uh, and 200 of them are like, dead tired. They're exhausted. They're like, we can't go on. And they sit down. The rest of the men go on. They fight the battle. They get the spoils. And on the way back, some of the men are saying, those 200 that were resting by the river, they shouldn't get the spoils because this is our earnings, our profit, our reward. So Achan, when he took Jericho and he goes in, what did he see when he looked at the things? What he saw was spoil. But the only other word we've ever had used to describe the property of Jericho is harem. Harem means his property of God. So Achan sees it as what? His pay for his work. Now let me ask you, what did Achan do in Jericho? God knocked down the walls and he walked in and he said, Okay, well we now have this city. But Achan thought, I deserve some payment for this. I deserve some reward. This is my spoil. But in calling it Harem, God is saying, I am the one delivering it. I am the one doing it. Therefore, you don't deserve and will not receive any kind of spoil. I mean, it's really interesting when you look at this concept of spoil because God will let them in Joshua chapter 8, verse 2, He will let them share in the spoil. You shall do to Ai and its kings as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its livestock you may take as booty for yourselves. Set an ambush against the city behind it. Isn't that weird? The city before a guy gets killed for taking spoils. And then in the very next city, God says, you can go ahead and take the spoils. It's this recognition that God wants them to know as they're taking the spoils, what they're calling spoils is really a gift from God. See, when they start earning their own way, when God starts to be less prevalent and less visible, they have to remember through that entire process that this came into my possession not by my independence, but it came into my possession by my dependence on God. And even the things that I'm going to call spoil... I need to recognize simultaneously is gift, and it also is a part of the reward of the independence of what I do as a person who fights in this battle. See, when it comes to blessing, God wants the people to know that even when they participate in gathering the blessing, no matter how much they did, it's still considered a gift from God. And when something is a gift from God, the glory, the praise, the thanksgiving, it has to go back to God. As the one who provided everything that we need. So I think one of the keys to understanding Joshua is, where does the glory land? Where does the glory end up? And clearly the Joshua story is about telling us through Jericho and through Ai, God gets the glory. These supposedly independent people need to always remember that they only gain their independence by depending on God. They will only keep their independence by continuing to depend on God. Psalm 115 verse 1 says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. I mean, who gets the glory for the things that the people receive as they conquered these cities? God alone receives the glory because they depended on Him for His deliverance. Now, if you're thinking, well, that's an Old Testament thing. I'm a New Testament Christian. You can look at 2 Corinthians 4, 7. 
But we have this treasure in jars of clay, so that it might be made clear that this extraordinary power belongs to God and does not come from us. I think as Christians we have to realize that whatever independence we enjoy, it's only with an awareness of our dependence. I, I think one of the blessings of uh, the virus that seems to be going around, not that I'm saying God has brought it about, but one of the things that we can learn is, is no matter how much we think that we can do, how impenetrable we are, uh, how tough we are, how immune we are to things, something like a virus reminds us of how human we are. It reminds us of our distance between us and God, God who is immune to all these things, but we are subject to it. And as we look at our blessings, one of the questions we have to ask is who gets the glory? And hopefully this week as we do inventories, we come across uh, beautiful and wonderful things that we see and experience in this life uh, that we won't be telling our story about what we've accomplished, but that we'll be telling the story of what God has given and giving Him the glory for all that He's done and has provided. So our prayer as we conclude is not to us, O Lord, but to Your name give glory. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn His face towards you and give you peace. And just as a reminder, as we go out into the world, we go not on our own, but we go with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, with the love of God, and with the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. We'll uh, 